We're studying the book of Isaiah. Just checking. I thought something changed. I don't know what I know. <laughs> We're in chapters 19 and 20. So open your Bibles to that. Isaiah chapter 19 and 20. Isaiah, we know, is one of the major prophets, not major in the sense of importance, but of, of length and scope, one of five major prophets. Um, so we're going to take a break in between um, doing this book study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And the first break we're going to take is this coming uh, summer in July. I think it's the weekend after the 4th of July. We're going to study the book of Titus together. Titus is one of the what's called the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, and then the book of Titus, three books called the Pastoral Letters, written by the Apostle Paul uh, to his fellow servant and brother in the faith, Titus. Uh, He instructs Titus to stay on the island of Crete, which we'll see when we get into it, to set in order things in the church that have been established uh, during Paul's missionary journeys there. Uh, The church was subject to false teaching and vulnerable uh, to false teaching, so Paul tells Titus to to establish pastors and elders in the church, faithful elders to oversee the doctrinal purity of the church, um, and uh, also the conduct of the believers there in Crete. The book of Titus is filled, I mean, just filled with how believing and allowing the gospel, I love about this book, how believing and allowing the gospel to saturate our minds and our hearts and our lives results in not only a, a healthy church, but also a life filled with this Christ-exalting devotion to good works. It is the gospel of grace that teaches us how to be the church. It is the gospel that shows us not only how to be the church, but how so it is the gospel that motivates us to good deeds. You get that backwards, and you got religion, and you got bondage. If you're trying to work for God's grace, you're trying to earn God's love, you will be in bondage because that's not how it works. That's religion. That's not the gospel. So we're calling the series of Titus, The Gospel-Ordered Church, starting July 11. So it's a small little book, three chapters, and you can read it, I'm sure, once, at least once a day and just get into that book. That would be, be really helpful, and, you will, and we will learn, hopefully, a lot from what, especially in this day and this age, with all that's going on in our culture, I think it would be nice to look into see the gospel transforming and ordering the church and keeping our minds and focus on the gospel. Um, but right now we're in, again, Isaiah. We have been dealing with this section on, on, that deals with oracles, pronouncements, judgments, um, uh, burdens. We have seen God call his own people into account for their sin, their, their covenant-breaking sin. Uh, we've seen Isaiah speak mainly to the southern kingdom, Judah, but also to the northern kingdom of Israel. But in chapter 13, everything kind of changed or shifted a little bit. And now God has been speaking through Isaiah to the surrounding nations and I think it's important, again, to just take a moment and remember that the judgments of other nations were given to God's people. So Isaiah is speaking to the people of God, first and foremost. And the announcements and judgments of disasters are an announcement and judgment, or excuse me, an announcement of salvation for God's people. And what I mean when we say that, we've said that a couple of times, what I mean when we say that is... Knowing that in the end, when God brings his kingdom, the consummation, they say, of the ages, when the end happens, God is going to, he will destroy all the enemies that oppose his kingdom. And every sin 
that you and I combat against and struggle with every day will be destroyed. That should be and must be an encouragement to the people of God. I mean, I can't wait until sin is destroyed in me first. The day will I will live with a glorified body, a resurrected body that is without sin. That's an encouragement. The older I get, the more I hate it in my own life. That's why Paul said the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so the, this vindication of God's holiness punishing sin and the evidence of his love that is graciously given to us and granted to us in Christ, forgiveness and reconciliation, that should well up this praise and, and, and joy and gratitude. God will judge sin, yes, but he also, he also will graciously save. So as we read the description of these nations, of these nations that are, that are being judged and the destruction of nations and as sin is being judged, remember... It's for God's people so that we can behold his, his, his justice, but his grace, his wonder, the beauty, and the greatness of God. Okay, so that's what we mean by that. So, so far we've seen these oracles against Babylon, against Assyria, Israel. There have been things said about Judah as well, but Philistia, Moab, last week Damascus, Syria, um, the city of uh, the Syria, the nation, its capital was Damascus. This week, we're adding to the list Egypt. Egypt. So here we find in chapters 19 and 20, an oracle and sign against Egypt. Three, three easy follow-alongs. Again, Scripture's not up on the screen, so you'll need your Bible, open your apps and your phone. Um, the folly of their wisdom, the future of their deliverance, and the failure of their hope. Okay, that's the three-point outline for those two of you who follow that. The folly of their wisdom. Chapter 19 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 15. Let me read God's word to you this morning. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up the Egyptians against Egyptians. They will fight each other against another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. They will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers, the mediums, and the necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up, and the river will dry up and parched, and its canals will become foul, and the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament, all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish, be weak and feeble, who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counsels of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. I've been waiting to say that out loud. Ricky and I were saying this morning, like, we can't tell our kids not to say stupid anymore because it's a biblical word. 
Dad, it's in the Bible. I'm like, oh, no, still you can't say it. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am son of the wise, a son of the ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled with in her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds. As a drunken man staggers in his vomit, and there will be nothing for Egypt, the head, that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. Nothing they may do. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Syria, Assyria, was gaining strength. We talked about that. Pastor Ricky did a great job last week talking about uh, Damascus. And he said that the Assyrians were gaining strength and power. They had defeated Damascus, Syria, around 732 B.C. Ten years later, 722, they march, Assyria marches into Israel and, cap, and captures Samaria, their capital city. And at that point, the southern kingdom, Judah, is again looking for help. They're going to be looking south to Egypt for help. For this growing Syrian nation is getting stronger and stronger. And Isaiah now wants to warn Judah, once again, to not rely upon Egypt. We'll see that really clearly in chapter 30 and 31. And he's warning them, again, not to put their hope and put their confidence in other foreign powers. Here, it's Egypt. Ultimately, God's people must seek and trust First and foremost, in God alone. It not, that does not mean that we should not seek help, counsel from one another. What, what Isaiah is saying is that these unhealthy alliances, seeking help and, and trusting in things that God would say not to do, we should not do. In fact, as I was thinking about that this morning... Uh, this week, I mean, I was thinking about that letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. We went through it several years ago. Paul was concerned about a lot of things in the church of Corinth. It was a jacked up church. One of the things that he was concerned about is they were, they were getting messages. They were getting lectures. People were teaching that there was no resurrection from the dead. And Paul knew that that false message would mess with their, their behavior. They would, they would live a sinful lifestyle, wrecking, thinking that today is the day and today we live for all that we see and all that we get and not the glorious future of Christ because there's no resurrection. And in that context, he tells them in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. The word company uh, could be, is more like a lecture or a sermon, a message that they're hearing. What Paul is saying is when you're, when you're, when you're, when you're being taught things that are untrue, they drive you to make decisions that are harmful. So everything we do, every decision we make is an application of the lecture or the message uh, that we're listening to. Whether it's belief or unbelief about God, it drives our actions and drives our behaviors. Isaiah is saying, don't hang out with those who are teaching you things that are wrong. In other words, he's not saying don't get involved with people who don't believe the gospel. He's not, he's not saying that, you know, they shouldn't be light and salt to the earth. Actually, Israel, Judah, was supposed to be light and salt to all the nations for them to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. Same as the church. We are supposed to be light and salt to the nations. But what Isaiah is warning them is as they put their trust in other nations, 
and in the ways of the world in false gods, it is indicative of their failure to trust God. And it's joining with them and listening to their messages that come from a a pagan perspective. The question that we must ask ourselves, this is dear to me, is who is influencing who? We teach here at this church that we are not to escape culture. In other words, we want nothing to do with people who are non-believers. We don't want to escape culture and run and hide. We don't want to emulate culture and just jump in with both feet and do everything everyone does in order to fit in. What we want to do is not escape and emulate. What we want to do is engage the culture for the cause of the gospel. The people of God were supposed to be salt and light to the nations, to declare to the world the word of God, the grace of God, the greatness of the God, not join in their ways. And they're going to learn, Judah's going to learn, as with other nations, that whoever put their trust in other things other than God will eventually be destroyed. Don't trust, Isaiah is saying to Judah, don't trust in Egypt because, look at verse 1, I'm coming to them on a cloud. Riding on a swift cloud. That is a a description of the sovereignty of the Lord over all the earth. And look at the consequences of of his coming. Her idols will demonstrate their impotence. Her people will be fearful. Tremble. The idols of Egypt, Egypt will tremble at his presence. Egypt. This is the second time around for Egypt, isn't it? God shows up back in Exodus. To Egypt with the plagues and other things, taught them a lesson of who's sovereign over every single one of, the, of, their, of their gods. Each one of the plagues destroys their, under, their, destroys their, their, their worship of false gods. Now they're around again, round two. So in verse two, notice with me, Isaiah begins speaking in the first person, the announcement of God, and I will stir up, verse two. I will give, verse four. And Isaiah speaks, and God is speaking through him. And look what, he, look what he does in the first thing he does. He'll bring civil war in Egypt. The Lord will stir up Egypt so that they will be in opposition, see what it says, against one another. Neighbors, kingdoms, against one another. And you think, well, how, how, how does that happen? Like, their own people turn on one another. And then you think, well, I know some people that turn on one another. People, marriages, on the same team, oneness in Christ, yet turn on one another. Not that very far-fetched. All they really got to do is go right into all the kingdoms of Egypt and put two TVs, one CNN and one Fox News. Give it a year. They'll be killing each other. That's all they got to do. And when God acts in judgment, the nation, look at, they lose their unity. I mean, it's scary to think about. When there's disunity and there's, there's fighting one another, God's presence is not with them. Hmm. That could preach. Verse 3. This outward conflict now and confusion is met with internal conflict. Egypt, no strength left, right? To resist the Lord in any way, can't assert herself against the Lord. The spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out. And what will they do? Who will they turn to? When I confound their counsel, they want inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. The disastrous result is that people now engage in the most foolish of all follies as they turn to demonic practices, to d- demonic ways 
A wise nation seeks what? The will of God, the word of God, the wisdom of God. A foolish nation seeks their own advice, or the advice of the dark world. Egypt was one of the most polytheistic uh, uh, people of the nation of the ancient Near East, as I mentioned earlier. They, they've had multiple gods, worship all kinds of things. But all those gods, all those spiritual uh, spiritist uh, practices associated with all this polytheistic worship are helpless before the living God. The Egyptians will search among the dead, the idols, the inquiring of uh, fortune tellers. But look, nothing will help them. Nothing will help them. And that is forbidden for God's people as well, as long as we know that. Tarot cards and all these other things that we seek after, rather than running to the living God and the living word of God, is a sin, is forbidden for God's people. And that includes, I hope I don't burst anybody's bubble today, but it is what it is, horoscopes. The belief that these planets and stars, the astrology, can exercise influence over our lives, predicting future events in persons' lives. Oh, you're a Capricorn? Drives me crazy. Like, I'm not, by the way, but it just drives me. Like, what is that God? Open your Bible. That's what I want to say. But anyway, verse 4, God declares, that's the way you want to go? I'm giving you over to the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. And a fierce king will rule over them. The word rule over means that they will be in bondage. They will be captive. They will be locked up. There's no escape. They'll be given over to the Egyptians. We're given over into the hand of an oppressor. Most likely, I read lots of commentaries. It looks like this happened around 715 BC. Ethiopian king, which is below Egypt, has extended power into Egypt um, and, and ruled over them. There's a couple other dates that people have thrown around, but it could be one or two of those dates. But we know, I think the principle is simple. Giving into the darkness of, the, of that world in those idols and rebelling against the known will of God will bring us into bondage. In fact, Paul will write, I, 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 I jotted down, in 2 Corinthians 9, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 10, he says this, we walk, although we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy, to destroy strongholds. In other words, it's not outwardly that we're really fighting, But divine power to destroy strongholds, we destroy arguments and every lofty thing, lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God by taking every thought captive to the obedience to Christ. In bondage to, 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 to the things of, of this world, to, to, to the powers of this world, or to patterns, or to strongholds that have been in your mind. The Bible says we are to take our thoughts captive to the obedience to Christ. In verses 5 through 7, Isaiah turns now to the incredible importance of the Nile River in Egypt. John Oswald rightly says this. He says, it is not an overstatement to say that without the Nile, there would be no Egypt. Without the life-giving flow of water out of Central Africa, the Sahara would simply extend unbroken to the shores of the Red Sea. For there is little or no rainfall east 
of the Sahara, making Egypt completely dependent upon irrigation water from the Nile, end quote. That's how important the Nile is. It brings irrigation. It brings new topsoil. It brings uh, produce. Um, and we'll see fishing. It brings revenue. It brought Egypt into the, the, the mainstream of high culture. Very, very important. And God here in verses 5 through 7 is going to dry up and bring destruction to the Nile. And I think the point of that passage for us this morning is that there are things in our life, there are things in my life, that may seem that they will always be there. It'll always be there. It'll always give me, give you what we need. There's constant in our life. But just as God cut off what was predictable in their life, the abundance of, of, of this river, their self-confidence, their dependency upon uh, what they depended upon, God has the ability to cut off and take away what is so predictable for us. The things that we have abundance, things that we are self-confident on. And he does that. He strips that away from us, what we think is constant, what we think is there, for one purpose. And that is for us to come to the complete reliance upon him. We've said this over and over about Isaiah. I think his whole life was to get people to trust him. He's worthy of our trust. That's what's best for our children, to have nothing to cling to but God alone. So why then depend upon a country whose only life source is not in their hands ultimately, but in the ultimate hands of Israel's God? Why? Judah, don't do it. I've mentioned this quote before from John Piper. I love it. It's on my email. If you get an email from me, he writes this. I rejoice in the sovereignty of God, all the work that God is doing, all his purposes, all his plans, everything that he has set to do will happen. I rejoice in the sovereignty of God because he wields it in all things. Why? To preserve himself as my greatest treasure, end quote. In other words, God's beloved children in Christ, he strips those idols those things that we rely on, the things that we, we hold to in order to, to feel like we're somebody, we have value and identity, so that our hearts rest in his provision. That may be going on with you today. And maybe you're fighting it. Run to the Lord. Take rescue, take refuge in the Lord. He's enough. He works all things to preserve himself as our greatest treasure. Verses 8 through 10, God moves from judgment of the land of the Nile to judgment of their businesses. As the Nile dries up, and the stream no more runs and no more water. Guess what else dies? Life dies. Life, plant life dies, I should say. And when plant life dies and water dries up, guess what you can't do? No more fishing. We can be assured that the fish uh, was uh, somewhat of, uh, of a, a major industry. Uh, bringing lots of money, I'm sure. And when the water stops, guess what's affected? Fishing, fish, business. Not only that, look what it says. Uh, flax. Right? So flax was, was a plant that was used, to, of course, used water to grow the plant, but it's also used to make linen, and you needed water to do that. So guess what? No water, no flax, no, no clothes, no work, no income, no way to make a living. Verses 11 through 13 moves to political uh, collapse of the nation. Those who should exhibit wisdom in their, in their ways of, uh, in their understanding and their, in their wisdom for their nation, the Zoan, the princes were what? Fools. 
Their counsel was, everybody say it together, stupid. God is calling out their silly wisdom, folly in their wisdom. Isaiah speaks directly to the wise men in sort of sarcasm. How they have the audacity to claim that we're son of a wise man. We're part of the wise class. Verse 11. How can you say to Pharaoh, I'm a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings. Where then are your wise men? Pharaoh, where are they? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. You can almost hear the taunting in the voice of God. The prophets ask the wise, the sages, do you know God's plan? You're supposed to know. You claim to be these wise guys. You don't know nothing. Right? They were supposed to know. Look at it, verse 13. The cornerstone, the foundation, interpreting what the signs were and what was going on, they were supposed to know. But they have no insight into the plans of God. They have no insight into the plans of God. Why? Because they're idols, the mediums, the necromancers... Are, are nothing before the living God. They are nothing before the living God. In fact, they will lead the people. Look what it says in the last part of verse 13. They will lead the people astray, making Egypt what? Stagger. And there is this, there's this, this picture of this brilliant self-glory, right? This, this man's brilliant world wisdom coming to nothing. Without access to the wisdom of God, the plan of God, the people are confused and they're led astray. And if you notice that the last two verses in this section... Uh, Isaiah ends with a metaphor. Proud Egypt wandering around, unsteady, back and forth, through the vomit of her drunkenness. Notice verse 14, the Lord, the very first words, the Lord, placed in the beginning of that sentence as emphasis. He's the one. He's the one doing this. God, the Lord God of Israel, creator God, is doing it. Gary Smith says, a confusing and distorting concoction that makes the Egyptian Wise men disoriented in their spirits. They stagger about not knowing what directions to go. Like shameful drunks, they will fall down in their own vomit. In this state, there is nothing anyone can do to help them, end quote. You are on your own. (laughs) You want to listen to them? You want to follow their worldly wisdom? How applicable is that today, right? Just want to turn off God, turn off his word. We got counselors, we got wise men, we got smart politicians, or any one of us who try to think we could solve all the problems that are going on apart from the Word of God, apart from the wisdom of God, just shows themselves but fools, unable to see the danger of their own actions. They're so caught up in what I think and what I want and what I know to be right. They're unable to, to receive any help. There needs to be humility, a a brokenness before God, or they will follow the path to destruction. But God. But God. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our sins, that we are children of wrath, but God is merciful. And that's the second part, the future of their deliverance. Look at verse 16 with me. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear. 
because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of those will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors. He will send them a savior, a defender, and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. Verse 22, and the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. And in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, verse 24, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying... Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Israel, in a, excuse me, Isaiah, in a remarkable turn, moves from poetry to prose, moves from judgment to blessing, from striking to healing. And what this passage shows us, and Isaiah is so, the book of Isaiah is so full of but God. This section shows us once again, but God, that, that divine hostility is not the last word. Alongside the problems, Isaiah plays the Lord's solution, the problems of Egypt and all the people who, who just disavow and walk away and don't want to hear from the Lord, who neglect God. Here is what they need to do. And to Judah, it's foolish for you to look to Egypt for help. It's foolish for you. Listen, they can't help any other nations. They can't even help themselves. But, but, eventually, Egypt and Assyria will come to the place to worship the Lord God with Judah. Remarkable. And if you notice, this section is marked by five repetitions. In that day, in that day, in that day. Verse 16, 18, 19, 23, and 24. Okay, you see that? Which make it plain that the prophet sees these events occurring at some point. Most likely at the end of times, God takes decisive actions, brings all his plans, all his purposes to their ultimate conclusion. That's where he'll end up. But first, notice. First couple of verses, he's kind of still speaking about Egypt. The recognition of God's power and God's punishment, verses 16 and 17. In that day, in the day that Egypt is judged, in that day when God approaches Egypt for punishment and judgment, the Egyptians, it says, will be like women trembling in fear. Nothing personal, ladies. I don't think he means anything by it. He's just saying these mighty men warriors in comparison to the ladies that are afraid. Nothing personal. Tremble in fear is an expression in Hebrew that combines terrifying and awe. Okay? A terrifying awe will take place when that day comes. In that day, verse 17, the worldly wisdom will know the real and true purpose of God. The purpose is revealed and accomplished. As Israel, look at, look at verse 17. As Israel had been a source of horror to the Egyptians back in Exodus, now Judah will be. A terror to the Egyptians, verse 17. Notice that. 
And the reason? What's the reason? What's the reason that Israel back in the Exodus and Judah now here speaking of Egypt's fear and terror of Judah, what's the reason for it? It's not a mighty army. It's not because they're coming to battle and they have 100,000 more fighting warriors. That's not it. In both cases here and in Exodus, the reason is God. That God was going to do the work. That they were resting and trusting in their God. And God shows up mightily and the people need to fear. Egypt needs to fear. Israel's God made and would make his power, his purposes plain and will accomplish them. That's, the, that's where the fear comes in. In verse 18, there's five cities, he says, Egyptian cities, will speak Hebrew. In other words, they will honor the Hebrew people. And not only will they speak Hebrew, but look, they're committed to the Lord of Israel. One of the cities, city of destruction, probably one of the cities that God uh, you know, brings destruction on before that, will be speaking Hebrew. Verses 19 through 22, you notice with me that longer section, in that day, I believe points beyond the immediate situation going on. And Isaiah now is talking about what will finally take place when the Lord's purposes, his final consummation, or at least the millennial reign, we'll get to that in a minute, will be fully realized. This section is showing us that the Egyptian people is amazing. That their faith expressed not only in experience, but in their actions. Look what it says. Like Abraham, they were built an altar. They're not going to build an altar in Jerusalem. They're going to build an altar where? In the heart of Egypt. They will worship the God of Israel in Egypt. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of John chapter 4 when Jesus is in Samaria. Samaria, And he sees that Samaritan woman who says to Jesus that her fathers, the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain, which you could probably just see from that spot, the mountain of Gerizim. But you Jewish people say, she's talking to the Lord, that it's in Jerusalem where we ought to worship. And what does Jesus say? Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Location is mute when we worship the true and the living God. Like Abraham, they built an altar. Like Jacob, Genesis 35, they will erect a pillar at the border to testify to the Egyptians, to, to testify that, that the Egyptians serve the same God as their Israelite neighbors. If you remember, even the Jordan, Joshua sets up a pillar. The river of Jordan, a a, a way to show God's grace and God's faithfulness and God's salvation for the Israel people, Joshua chapter 4. And these objects here are a sign and a witness, verse 20, of the faith they had, of their commitment, the Egyptians' commitment to God. And, I believe also, the unity, what God is speaking through uh, through Isaiah, the unity that the Egyptian people will have with Jerusalem, the people of God. And like the Israelites in the period of Judges, they will cry out. Look what it says. To the Lord, and he will what? Rescue them. God will hear their cry and rescue them. Verse 21. Uh, verse 20 and 21. He will hear their cry. He, he will be faithful. He will, he will rescue them. 
And like the Israelites, they will offer sacrifices. Verse 21 to the Lord. On the altar, they will come to the altar which was built in Egypt and worship and offer sacrifice and make vows. Verse 21. In other words, true religion, true worship now is found in Egypt as they worship the one true and living God. Amazing statements. And verse 21, a simple statement. The Lord will be known or will make himself known to Egypt. You know what that implies? It implies not just a calling out of God of, of Israel or the God of Judah or the God of, of, of Jerusalem. That means the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Yahweh, the one true God, they'll have a, a personal relationship with him. And at the foundation of all true worship is, look what he says, God will make himself known. That's how worship starts. When God makes himself known. Through his written word. And we respond to his glory and his self-revelation. And therefore in verse 22, because of this worship, they will, like Israel and like Judah, are subject to the Lord's firm but loving discipline. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing and they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy. And then he will what? Heal them. How often, maybe you're here this morning even. I know it was for me. How often when life seems to be calm and peaceful, everything seems to be going just fine. And then all of a sudden something happens or, or multiple things happen and life just comes crashing down around us. And we, we, we turn to God. There's no place else to go. And we turn to God in desperation and almost to a surprise, he's been waiting there all along. Waiting all along for us to, to come to him, for him to receive us. And here we see God not only delivering Egypt and Israel from the Assyrian oppression, but he's going to join the three countries together. Verses 23 and 24 in common worship. Egypt and Assyria will travel back and forth. You know your geography. Egypt will have to travel, let's see, northeast, Assyria, west, south. And there will be roads and they will worship together, not attacking one another, not joining these alliances against other nations. They will be worshiping the Lord. Ed Young, when men and nations come to know the Lord, the mutual hostilities and animosities cease. And they begin to act toward one another as brothers. Both travel the same highway, delighting not only in the service of the Lord, but also in mutual help, end quote. That's the bond of Christ. Verse 25, you got this benediction as God pronounces upon three people. Blessed be Egypt, my people. Blessed be Egypt, my people. Blessed be Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, blessed be them, my inheritance. Now, let me just toss a grenade in this. I believe that's the premillennial reign of Christ. or the I believe that's the thousand year Revelation 20, the reign of Christ, where that takes place. That's what I believe. My amillennial friends that are here, you believe, and I'm good with that. You believe that, nope, that's happening right now. The fulfillment of the church age, the Gentiles getting along with, with the Jews, and all one in Christ in the gospel. And that's true. But the fulfillment, I think, of this completely will be 
in the millennial reign and then in the final reign, which we all agree on, that Jesus Christ is King, Lord, sovereign ruler. He will establish his kingdom. And that King Jesus will reign and rule with peace and righteousness. And all nations, all people will come to know him. Now look at verse 20 with me before we go to our next point. We'll go right to communion. We'll go to communion. Verse 20b. When they cry to the Lord, this is what they have in common. Everybody. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them what? A savior. A defender. And he will deliver them. So the reason for this conversion and this worship of the Egyptian is this miraculous salvation from an unidentified savior and an unidentified oppressor. But we know who that is. We know, according to Ephesians 2, that there's a time when those who were once enemies of God, Gentiles in the flesh, non-Jews, without Christ, aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant promises of God without any hope and without God in the world, but God, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ, we were once far off. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus, himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh on the cross the dividing wall of hostility between groups that he might create in himself One new man in place of two. So making peace, Paul writes, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You want racial uh, harmony? The gospel is the answer. Hostility gone, one man. All nations, all tongues, all tribes. So here's my question as I was reading that. What do you think, and you guys can talk about this in the community group, I'll give you a little bit, but what do you think the people of Judah, when they read what happens to Egypt and Syria, think about it, you're there, right? You got all these wars going on, you, 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 everything is going on, right? And you read, and Isaiah says to them, verse 23 and verse 24, what could possibly be going through their mind on the words that Isaiah Speaks to Judah. What does God expect Isaiah's audience. Who now have learned about God's amazing future plans. For their neighbors and their enemies. What's the expectation? What are their thoughts? If the Israelites, the Judah, uh, the the people in Judah. Now know that what, what will happen in the future. Would that influence the way they treat people? Would that influence the way they care for others. Their neighbors, their friends. Should it not impact the decisions they make? Is it not true for us as well? If we're aware that God loves all people, all nations, and he redeems all people through Christ alone, he alone is our deliverer and our savior and our salvation, should that not make a huge, major turnaround impact in our lives, how we treat people of all nations, tongues, and tribes? It ought to. Even if they disagree with us. The future. And finally the failure. Verses 1 through 6. Only 6 verses. In the year that the commander in chief. Who was sent by Sargon. The king of Assyria. Came to Ashdod. And fought against it and captured it. At that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah the son of Amos. And he said to him. Go. 
Loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. I didn't make that up. Then the Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, not three minutes, not even three days, not even three months, three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt, that's a a signal, Egypt and Cush. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exile, Ethiopia, we learned that last week. Both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. So if you ever want to know where the term butt naked came from, now you know. Verse 4. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and of Egypt, their boast. And the inhabitants of the coastline will say in that day, behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Okay? No one's choosing this for topical preaching. Hey, let's preach on Isaiah chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. We'll call it the naked prophet. You know what I mean? Nobody does that. Obviously, this opens up with some real uh, historical setting. A commander-in-chief, he's from Sargon, is of Assyria, comes to Ashdod, which is the uh, northmost part of Palestine, about 35 miles from Jerusalem, Um, and, and... Actually, he, he goes into the city, he replaces the king with a puppet king, Assyria does, and this puppet king and, and this people of, of, uh, the, of, um, uh, of Philistines, uh, they, they, of Ashdod, they, they fight, uh, and he just crushes them. So that's kind of the backdrop of what's going on. It was during that year. And what basically he's saying, listen, Egypt's not helping Ashdod. Egypt's not helping anyone. In fact, According to history, Ashdod, the city of Ashdod, the Philistine city, asked for a lot of help from Egypt, from Moab. Look, we need your help. And obviously it didn't work. They got crushed. And those Judaites who desired to put their trust in Egypt would see their disgrace. That's the point. Again, we're speaking to God's people. Like, this is what's going around. This is what's going to happen. And, and, and God comes to Isaiah and says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go streaking for three years. It'll be a sign, it'll be a a portent, a signal against Egypt, against Cush. And when, because the king of Assyria will lead away the Egyptians, captives, and the Cushites, exiles, young and old, naked and barefoot, and, 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 and the buttocks, and they will, they will be naked as they leave and they're in captivity. Okay? You can see that there. Now, just so you put some context into this, when nations would come into other nations and destroy them and overcome them and conquer them, they would strip the prisoners that was, and chain them up and carry them along, you know, walking the distance or whatever. And they would strip and they would, they would um, uh, chain them and they would lead their nation and then drop people off as they were going to different places. And, you know, it was a way to demoralize the, you know, demoralize the captives. You know, you're stripping them naked. It's not only demoralizing, but it, it was practical too. There was no place to hide a gun, right? You're naked. What are you going to do? Stick it on? You know, there's no sword. You ain't got nothing, right? So you're a prisoner. You're going about your, your, your way, and you're in captivity. And, you know, that, that, that's, that's the way they did it back then. And verses 5 through 6 really is the lesson to be learned. Look at verse 5. They, Judah, shall be dismayed. When this happens, Isaiah is acting it out. He's doing this act-out prophecy. But when it happens, they'll be dismayed and ashamed because Cush was their hope. Egypt was their boast. 
Behold, verse 6, this is what happens to those in whom we hope that to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. Anyone who puts their hope and trust, not in God, but in Egypt or in Cush, God will do to them as well. Everyone. That's the point. Egypt's shame, Cush's shame will be theirs. It wasn't strong enough for Ashdod. And all these events, you, you can't save yourself. And the interesting thing is Assyria, which we've learned already, is doing the bidding of Almighty God. There's no way to fight it. Why then, Isaiah is asking, would we want to trust Egypt? It could only lean, excuse me, it could only end in shame for the Egyptians as it did for the Ethiopians. Why look to the fading glory of Egypt when you could look to the glory of God? If you do, look what it says, these last words. If you do, Isaiah asks, How shall we, God's people, how shall we escape? The answer, of course, is what? You won't. And the truth is, either will we. We are all guilty of trusting in other things, looking to other things for our help and for our salvation, seeking to find ultimate satisfaction in something or someone else, clinging something in order to be somebody, to matter, to have value, to have an identity, so that our hearts will find rest in something. It is when we see the truth and we treasure the truth of the gospel that our hearts can rest and we can find escape only in Christ. Hundreds of years later, someone else was bound. Someone else was taken into captivity and led away. He was mocked. He was humiliated, stripped of his clothes. They put a purple robe on him. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. They mocked him, saluting him, bowing down to him, spitting on him, sarcastically calling him king of the Jews as they tortured him and ridiculed him. He was bound and led and flogged. He was bound again and led to Calvary. Jesus Christ, our Savior, stripped of his clothes, nailed to a Roman cross, and in shame and in his nakedness in the manner of his death, dies a brutal death. Reserved for the worst of all criminals, stripped and hung, bound and led, bound and led away because of sin and rebellion. Not his, but yours and mine. Not his, but yours and mine. The hell Jesus endured, you and I deserve. On the cross, Jesus dies a full payment for our sins. A gruesome death, Jesus died, you and I earned that death. But on the cross, Jesus becomes our substitute. Enduring our sins, divine judgment and wrath, the one worthy of all honor, entered into the deepest parts of shame and guilt before a holy God. And the shame and guilt, again, was not his but ours for our sin. First, Second Corinthians says, For our sake he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. The one clothed with eternal glory. Love from the Father experienced abandonment, exposure, the shame he underwent, the scorn, the disrespect, all of which the sinners deserve, but not the spotless, sinless one. And family, I will tell you this morning that even though we at times look to false idols, even at times we are dependent on false saviors, trust in things that are seen rather than him who is unseen, seek counsel on things that will never truly show us the things of God nor satisfy us, even, then we, even when we look to things 
we will never be satisfied treasuring things that moth and, and, and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Jesus Christ still says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He is the Savior. He is the Defender. He is the Deliverer. He is the one who is struck So that we can be healed. He is the one that hears our pleas for mercy and heals our hearts. He was the one bound so that we can be free. He was the one stripped of his clothes, nailed to a cross in shame and disgrace. So that we can be forgiven and reconciled. That's our God. Do you know him that way? As the band comes up, I want to invite everyone to grab a cup. If you don't have one, there's some back there up for communion. This text in Isaiah teaches us about the gospel. The brokenness of Christ is blood that was shed on the cross for our sins. So I don't know where you are. God knows your heart. I do not. What is it in your life this morning that God wants you to relinquish, to let go, to trust him? Maybe there's an unhealthy alliance. Maybe you're going down a road that you know you're not influencing, they're influencing you. And you need to stand firm, whatever it may be. Jesus Christ invites you to the table, to the communion table. It's not a Baptist table, it's not a King's Chapel table, it's the Lord's table. Where the bread on the top represents his broken body. The cup representing the blood that was shed. For your forgiveness of sins. The gospel. Is proof. Not only of God's love. But his worthiness of our trust. That God would do. What he has done. That he would go to such great lengths. To save us. From our sins. And keep calling us to trust him. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks. And then he took the cup and he drank it. So if you're a Christ follower, we're going to spend some time in prayer. And maybe there's something you need to tell the Lord. Maybe there's some sin you need to confess and repent of. Maybe there's something you need to trust God. And let's do that quietly in your seat just for a quiet moment. Let's quietly pray before the Lord. And Father, we as your people confess that we do seek wisdom, we do seek false saviors, we do seek at times things that we know will not bring not only salvation but ultimate joy and peace. Forgive us of our sins. Help us to enjoy the forgiveness you offer in the gospel. Lord, we pray today as we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup. We're, we are, we're pressing in the truths of the gospel deeper into our hearts. That, Lord, we will live a life out of the fullness of the gospel and the grace and mercy that you've shown to us in Christ. Lord, that we will trust you each and every day. 
Lord, and when we're seeking things, we're seeking after things that we shouldn't. We will, you will listen to the Holy Spirit and turn from them things and run to you. Knowing you are always there. Your arms are always wide open for your children. Where the blood of Calvary still flows today. Where forgiveness is received and rejoiced in. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time. And thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate this bread and this cup together. Remembering, rejoicing, and pressing in the truths of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name.